Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining us to talk about what's going on at the Vatican regarding their diplomacy and the Russian-Ukraine war is former representative and also former ambassador Francis Rooney. He was a Republican congressman from Florida for two terms, but was also uh, it, uh, U.S. ambassador to the Vatican uh, from 2005 to 2008, has a very good insight into what's going on there. So good, in fact, he wrote a really good book called The Global Vatican, An Inside Look at the Catholic Church, World Politics, and the Extraordinary Relationship Between the United States and the Holy See. And uh, Ambassador Rooney, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on. So this has been sort of a curious episode, right? I mean, you've got uh, you've got the Vatican, which usually likes to make sure that it's got all of its options open when it comes to diplomacy. And uh, you, you had a, um, a very good column up at the... Uh, I believe it was at Fox News regarding the history, uh, you know, a short a short recap of the history of how the Vatican routinely tries to mediate international disputes. Um, it's one of the few places in the world where there's uh, completely open diplomacy that takes place. And so they have a lot of reach, a lot of influence. And yet, as you write, it seems like Pope Francis and the Vatican seem reluctant to leverage that in this conflict and uh you, you sound like as though you're getting kind of frustrated by that and i imagine you're not the only person who is probably not you know uh i wrote the op-ed because i read the comments that the pope made which to me were um I, I don't know if disingenuous is the right thing to say but not nearly as clear and forward leaning on confronting the aggression of russia as i think many of us would like to see he was almost apologizing for well, in fact, almost, I mean, I would say, if not apologizing, then issuing Vladimir Putin's apologetics on what the genesis of the war was. I mean, Pope Francis talked about NATO expansion as though that was an aggression on Russia. And while maybe it wasn't particularly well advised to try to loop in Ukraine and Georgia, that took place, you know, more than a decade ago. And frankly, hadn't really advanced since. It's, I mean, that's that's clearly not the big issue here for Putin. The big issue here is that Putin is, I think, to, to no one's surprise who's followed Putin, a Russian imperialist that is falling in line with centuries of Russian imperialism. And this is sort of the Russian impulse going back to the days of the czars. And this is just another form of this. And I'm, I'm a little mystified as to why uh, we would be criticizing the NATO for allowing a sovereign state to make its own decision as to whether or not it wanted to join the alliance at all. Yeah, a couple of points. I think you make some very good ones. Uh, first of all, Putin wrote 15 years ago that his intent was to do exactly what you say. He wants to regain the properties that were taken away from the Soviet sphere behind the Iron Curtain that Peter the Great had conquered before. And he feels that Russia's wounded and needs to, to get them back which we don't have to put up with that. The other thing is NATO was set up to protect democracies in Western Europe. If we have new democracies, what's wrong with NATO protecting them too? Well, I mean, and again, it goes back to the fact that even Russia, and this is of course prior to Putin coming to power, but even Russia recognized the sovereignty of the former Soviet republics. That is not in dispute and sovereign nations have opportunities to align however they want to align and so it's a little odd 
to to hear Pope Francis talking about this as some sort of a legitimate gripe uh, of Vladimir Putin about you know NATO expansion. I mean, it was more than just NATO expansion; it was the EU expansion as well. The uh, mm -hmm. countries yeah. that wanted to align themselves more closely politically and economically, not just militarily. Uh, to and that, that crosses another line with this pope, too. I don't think he's really a capitalist. I think he's well, an true. Argentine Jesuit. And and what what we see in these newly emerging nations, which have uh, embraced democracy, but have also embraced free enterprise, and they become part of the community of nations of the EU and or the, the concept of the EU and ultimately the EU. And I don't I don't see the problem with that. But the pope evidently does. He sees a problem there. He sees a lot. And as you point out in your column, he doesn't seem to see much more obvious problems. And I'm just going to use the quote that you use. Uh, While we see the ferocity, the cruelty of Russian troops, we must not forget the real problems if we want them to be solved, Pope Francis said. As if uh, a Russian war of aggression and the cruelty of Russian troops and their ferocity aren't the real problem. I mean, this is what right. the real problem is, right? Is, is bombing that mall a couple of days ago with all those innocent people in there not enough? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, this is, it's a strange position to be in. And there's a couple of things I think that are going on here. One is that Pope Francis has for several years tried to pursue a rapprochement with the um, Russian Orthodox Church, which I think is ill-advised because it's, I think there's there's better candidates in the in the orthodox sphere uh, with which to with which to reach that sort of rapprochement. Couldn't uh, agree more. The, the Russian yeah. Orthodox Church is a tool of Putin. It's been a they tool, were a of, tool of the too. Russian state. Yeah, they always have been. Right. If you want to talk to the Greeks or the Uniates or different Orthodox sects around the Eastern Europe, that's great. I agree with you hundred percent. So I think that. There's a conflict of interest. I don't say conflict of interest. That's not the right term. But I think that there is a misprioritization of interests here. I think the fact that I think it's not a very clear eyed look to look at uh, Patriarch Carol as a as a genuine as a genuinely um, uh, ecclesial player in this. I think you're right. He's Putin's tool. He's 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 a Putin toady and he's proven himself that. Uh, I did think, though, that the Vatican was waking up to this because I think it was a couple of months ago that you started to hear officials at the Vatican start to specifically and explicitly criticize Carroll for some of the statements about that he was making in terms of the war and saying, uh, you know, a, a patriarch of a church really should be a man of peace. And, uh, you know, this is not the message of Christ. And I was thinking that, OK, the Vatican's starting to signal that they're coming around on this thing and that they're they're going to eventually... Uh, take up the Ukrainian cause. And yet it still hasn't happened that way. I'm surprised. No, he totally went back the other way. Right. You know, uh, Benedict wasn't fooled by those Russian Orthodoxes at all. And and like you say, there were some good comments coming out of Pope Francis's administration. But now he's gone the other way. He's blaming us for infuriating and scaring Putin. Now, that is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, this is sort of... Um, you know, I think maybe previous popes having had a a ringside seat to the aftermath of World War II and the ethno um, uh, the ethno demagoguery that preceded it that that enabled it had a clearer view of uh, of the of the threat that Putin ha uh, that was was starting to 
was starting to pose. Well, and I guarantee Pope, Pope really Benedict that, and though. yeah, Pope Benedict and John Paul would have a different view than this guy. Well, exactly my point. I mean, John Paul was behind the Iron Curtain, saw the, uh, you know saw World War II as uh, you know saw the 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 Germans used that type of you know ethnic determinism uh, as a as a precursor as an excuse. Um, and of course, Benedict was in Germany and saw Germany do that, you know, a, a little bit more, a little bit more closely, and understood what, what the, uh, what the implications of that were. You know, again, you've got the first South American Pope, uh, Argentinian um, uh, Pope Francis, who didn't grow up in that milieu, who didn't, who didn't come of age in that milieu, and I'm not even sure he's really terribly aware of that milieu in in Europe and what it means what it's going to mean for instance not just in Ukraine but what it's going to mean in you know Lithuania Latvia Estonia uh and and to a certain extent Finland which is one of the reasons why Finland of course is now decided oh, yeah. that they want to be part of NATO yeah. Sweden too yeah. Sweden too yes yeah well I think the Pope's an Argent like you say he's an Argentinian I think he's got a lot of things in there relating to being a Western Hemisphere uh, Hispanic vis-a-vis -vis the United States, vis-a-vis -vis the, the way the church is down there with the whole liberation theology. There's a lot bundled up in him that probably doesn't support being as clear about an aggressor like Putin as we might like. So, Ambassador Rooney, what is it that you are, what is it that you hope that the Vatican can do from this point forward? I mean, even apart from the rhetoric that's coming from Pope Francis, which I agree hasn't been helpful. Uh, what what steps do they start, need to start taking? Some concrete steps, well, even if they want to play. Remember, it. remember Benedict at Regensburg. Yes, I think we need that vis-a-vis -vis Putin. I think someone should call him out, like the Pope, and say this butchery that you're perpetrating is not is not condonable at the least. You are a pariah in the civilized world, and we are more than glad to help mediate with you if you come up with a fair. Uh, forum for mediation but that doesn't exist right now as long as you're killing innocent victims do you suppose that a visit to ukraine would uh, would matter i mean right now you're, they're still trying to bomb kiev right so mm -hmm. uh, i mean it certainly would be risky but this is a pope who's not been terribly concerned about taking those types of risks in the past and i, I frankly and, and again you've got a lot of catholics in ukraine it's primarily an orthodox primarily an Orthodox country, but there's a lot of Catholics in Ukraine who might be rallied to, uh, might rally to the, to the Pope in, in that instance. Well, and certainly yeah, but you got to worry about what would this guy say if he went there? Well, true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what his comments scared me. This little red riding hood business and all that. I couldn't believe he said all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should go over that real quickly for people who have, aren't immersed in this. Now, talk a little bit about the little red riding hood comment. He said a comment that, that like, to be, uh, if I remember correctly, getting down on Putin so severely, it's like Little Red Riding Hood worrying about the big bad wolf. Well, he is the big bad wolf. Yeah. And what I said in my article is how much atrocity has to be perpetrated to, for the Pope to say, nope, enough of this. Well, you have to wonder what the Ukrainians are thinking. Again, Ukraine, yeah. Ukraine having a fairly strong Catholic church, um, and uh, it, and certainly looking to the Holy See to play the sort of leadership yeah. role that you know that it did during the Cold War with um, with uh, you know Saint John Paul II and um, and 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 Benedict the Sixteenth uh, being, being still a beacon of 
of liberty while still maintaining the the, the Holy See's diplomatic options. Uh, I mean, if I'm in Ukraine, I got to be looking to the Holy See and saying, you know, how, do we not matter? It's like the old Wendy's commercial. Where's the beef? I mean, I don't think they're going to have the same reaction that the Poles had when the Pope pounded his fist on the table and said to Jaruzelski, Poland is one big concentration camp. That's the kind of clear speaking we need from the Pope right now. It is. It is. And um, but beyond the Pope, let's let's just say, is there anything that the Vatican can can be doing, should be doing um, below the level of the Pope that might make a difference here? Um, because, you know, obviously Vatican is a monarchy. It's run by the Pope, but there's plenty of other people there and some of whom have a, a lot of influence. And are, are there people who could be using uh, the diplomatic channels at the Vatican better than what they're doing right now, including the United States? Well, sure. You know, the, the greatest asset the Holy See has is its convening power, being a, a uh, kind of an impartial country among strong secular nations. And, and they could use that. They could offer that convening power. They've done it many times in the past. Look, Pope, Pope Benedict, I put in my book, got those uh, Iranian, uh, those British soldiers out of Iran, you know, by writing, right. or, or writing the, the Ayatollah. And, you know, th there's influence they could deploy if they want to do it. But pandering to Putin is not going to set the stage to be able to be effective in exerting soft power influence. You've already given up your bargaining power. Well, and there's a difference between soft power and appeasement, right? And this is one of the points mm -hmm. that you raise in your um, in your column at Fox News uh, is that is that there seems to be a problem at the Vatican uh, in, in distinguishing between the two, between soft the use of soft power and appeasement, which really are two different things. Totally, totally. Like I read in there, you know, Churchill's great quote about the crocodile. I mean, appeasement is giving in. Absent principle, giving in to avoid a problem, whereas soft power is recognizing differences of opinion and trying to figure out how to bring the parties together in a unique diplomatic environment. Yeah. And this is it, really, honestly, it's not that unique, right? I mean, at least this conflict is not that unique. We've dealt with wars of no, aggression. No, the Holy See's environment for no, conflict no, I, resolution is unique. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. That's and not, sorry. No, I totally agree with you on that. And I, I was making... It was one of those things where you make a leap to the next step and forgot yeah. that you haven't stated the, the, the inter, intermediate step here. You're exactly correct. This is the type of environment where, I guess if you're going to make an analogy, right, it's sort of like Casablanca's Cafe American, right? Everybody comes to Rick's. Um, so you can talk yeah. to everybody. Um, and that's, in a way, that's the Holy See in its diplomatic environment. Um, oh. But, but I wasn't a huge fan of the uh, rapprochement with Cuba that the Obama administration pursued. But you look at the role the Holy See played in that. There's nobody that could have pulled that off at the Holy See. All those discrete meetings in Holy See nuncios in Canada, the meetings in Rome, no secular power could have kept that under wraps for over a year. Right. Right. And whether or not you agree with the with the uh, with the Cuban policy of the Obama administration, it was still a a fairly impressive accomplishment for for the Holy See, and mm -hmm. when their role became yeah, when their role became known, I mean, and again, that sort of sort of raises the bar, and and again, it's a contrast over really a lackluster, almost almost a, a missing in action um, 
performance so far after four months of outright war here. You're just not seeing, I don't know if it's just they're not taking it seriously or if they're just really uninterested in this. I, I, I'm sure you still have plenty of contacts there. I'm not sure what you're hearing about this, but it is mystifying that four, four months into a war with as many atrocities as we have, and the Holy See is really still sitting on the sidelines. It's, it's unusual. Yeah, I think they're taking their lead from the Pope. I think he's been reluctant to engage aggressively against Putin. And, and he's bought into the mantra that, oh, big bad NATO's made Putin uncomfortable. So we're the fault. We're the wrongdoers here. I, just, I don't know how he came up with that. Can the U.S. do anything here to, uh, to press the case? I mean, Joe Biden is... Uh, you know, he's a second Catholic president. I mean, that's not, that's, that does, the United States itself is a big enough status that that's not really a big issue with the Vatican, I'm sure, other than just a, an interesting aside. Um, but clearly, I mean, I think that if you're looking at the, you know, the, the cultural and political outlook at the, you know, from Biden is probably at least aligned somewhat with Pope Francis. This is, you'd think that there'd be something in terms of personal diplomacy coming directly from the Oval Office that might be able to move this. And I'm not sure I'm seeing a whole lot of effort in that regard. Biden's very focused on the EU. And I think he's, after a after a bad start, I think he's managed to play catch up pretty well. But I, I don't see anything going on between no, the US and No, I, I think that uh, if I were ambassador and the Bush and President Bush, who I was working for, would let me, in this situation was present, I would have tried to have a diplomatic demarche against the Holy See for, for uh, uh, appeasing Putin. And I would call on them to try to use their power to convene something uh, that only they can do uh, better than the Ukraine-Russia talks, which we're not going to go anywhere at all, and, and see if they would take an active role in conflict resolution here. Well, it's very interesting. It's, it's a little um, uh, disappointing. I think is a is a good way to put this that we're still not seeing a more active role uh, even after several months. Uh, it's one thing to conserve your it's one thing to conserve your diplomatic options. It's another thing to just put them on the shelf, Ambassador yeah. Rooney. It is, yeah. They're not using the tools that they have, and the the, the words that they're saying are actually counterproductive. So, Ambassador Rooney, um, just to wrap things up here, what's what's coming up next for you? you got anything interesting coming coming up? Are you um, working on another book, maybe, or or doing something else interesting in the in the realm of politics? Or are you just enjoying a a well earned and well deserved retirement? Well, I'm kind of watching to see how things start to unfold. There's some some good friends of mine that are running, going to be running for president, and I'll probably get involved in that as the time comes. Uh, first, see how I've been helping people with the midterms, and I feel pretty good about the Republicans getting the House back. Yep. Uh, you never know how this Roe v. Wade thing might, you know, if you watch the liberal media, they're going to say the turnout will be so great that it'll totally upend everything. But I, I find it hard to believe. And I think we have a good shot at the Senate, too. Well, I, I, I'm hopeful on both of those. I, I will say this, and I'll just share it with you, you know, because I wrote about it earlier today. We're recording this on Wednesday is that the New York Times took a look at the turnout. Um, uh, the Associated Press took the, took a look at the turnout. We're four days after Dobbs, and there's no real appreciable <laughs> impact on voter yeah. behavior. I, I, you know, Four months later, I can't imagine that that's really going to be the issue. The real issue that's kind of come up in this election is the daily lived experience of, of American voters, and that's 
That's the economy. That's inflation. Yeah. That's gas prices. That's shortages at the grocery store. That's really what's going to drive this election. They've wasted all the money. They spent it to, to incentivize people not to work. Now we have a labor crisis. Now we have an inflation crisis. The Fed's been buying bonds way too long, subsidizing rates that are way too low. And the piper's going to have to get paid. And it's going to happen now. It's happening right now. It is happening right now. Uh, so, yes, indeed. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Hopefully, we get a chance to talk to you somewhere along the line and see what else you might be working on. But in the meantime, people can buy your book if they haven't already read it. It came out, uh, you know, this has been out for a while, but it's still very much worth reading, folks. The Global Vatican, an inside look at the Catholic Church, world politics, and the extraordinary relationship between the United States and the Holy See. Ambassador Francis Rooney, thank you so much for joining us today. Ed, thank you for having me on your show. When we come back, we'll have more from the Ed Morrissey Show, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. As always on Thursdays, we go to one of my best friends in the business, Dwayne, generally Samo Patterson of the Hugh Hewitt Show, master of the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, the troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. You know, the nice thing about the universe and the universe is that they're both infinite, right? <laughs> I don't know about the universe. The universe is infinite, which means oh. that, you know, things kind of double back on themselves, Dwayne. And, and you know, you, that, you know, what goes around comes around and it keeps coming back around. Right. And um, Joe Biden's kind of like that <laughs> in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And this is just before we went, we started recording this. Joe Biden's yes. in Madrid. Right. Right. With the, the yes. G7. Right. Yes. All right. So Joe Biden says, well, you it know, was what? A, it was a NATO thing. Right. It was kind of a. It, it, no, it was G7. It was G7. Okay. I mean, they're certainly doing NATO business there, but it was a they're G7 They're doing NATO meeting. business there, too. Yeah. yeah. And um, he had a chance to comment on what the, you know, what what, what can be done in the wake of uh, the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And his, his suggestion is, his demand is that the Senate amend its filibuster rule so that you can pass, so that the Senate can pass on a party line vote a codification of Roe v. Wade into federal law. Oh, did he now? Oh, he did. He did. Oh. This is like the third time he's demanded some change in the filibuster so that his agenda can pass, right? Um, At least. What, what, do you, what do you suppose is going to be the reaction of Mitch McConnell when, uh, when, when he proposes that? Well, actually, no. I, I, I can tell you exactly what the, what the reaction of Mitch McConnell is going to be. Yes, exactly that's that's, right. that's going to be it, yeah. Um, so, do you think Chuck Schumer is going to take the bait next to try to pull that? Yes, I actually do. I actually think that Chuck Schumer is stupid enough to try this again. <laughs> it's like the, the, the third or fourth time this session that he's trying to you, kill the filibuster. You, you think in an in, in an election year that you, that Kirsten Cinema and and I understand they're not you know Joe Manchin is not up for for election. But do you, do you think in an election year that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are going to want to blow up partially the the uh, filibuster? Yes. No, I mean, sorry, not, not Joe Manchin and, uh, and Kirsten right. Sinema, but Chuck Schumer. This is the only thing that they've got to run on right now, <laughs> and we're going to get to why this is. But the only thing they got to run on is abortion, and it's going to move about twenty percent of the electorate. 
it's this is desperation man this is we absolute already, desperation we already saw a poll you wrote on hot air a couple days ago we've already seen um indications from the from the primaries it the the it's not moving any ever ever since dobbs came out uh, the, the leak came out 50 some odd days ago whatever it was we've had primaries in what a dozen states something like that yeah about that yeah and the Democratic turnout has done what since the Dobbs? Hasn't changed. I mean, it hasn't gone down either, but it, it hasn't changed. Uh, in some states, it actually has gone down. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's related to... Again, I don't even know if it has any relation to uh, to what happened my, my in, in point, Dobbs. My point, I, I doubt that it did. My, my point exactly. The, right. The, the, point, the, the point being is Democratic turnout is depressed from four years ago. And that's largely because of the economic conditions and Joe Biden being 140 years old. I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why Democratic turnout is down. But um, to, to say that they're going to all of a sudden rally over the over the Roe v. Wade decision, it's it's there's just no indication of that. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's so. So you think you think that Democrats in uh, in in vulnerable places, Elizabeth Cortez Masto. In, in Nevada, she's going to say, you need to reelect me. You need to save me because I at least blew up the filibuster. That that's that. <sighs> well, I got to tell you, Maggie, vote, that's the vote she wants to take. Maggie Hassan is saying that she her her messaging is you have to reelect me. And there, I, I didn't I don't have the clip in front of me or I don't have the um, wasn't a clip. It was a uh, news report. But they're they're adjusting her messaging in New Hampshire, saying to say that you have to reelect me to keep Republicans from outlawing abortions. Um, across you know on a federal level um i mean they're they don't have anything else what else are they going to run on okay <laughs> got nothing so, else so yes say, i think i think i think cortez masto might very well run on that message in nevada okay and it's so, not going to work so let's let's just say hypothetically let's just say hypothetically they do that right and what do we think the Republicans, the conventional wisdom right now, if you look at the Senate map in uh, in 22 in November, what do we think the 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 final swing is going to be as far as GOP pickup or Democratic pickup? What what, what do you what do you have the Senate uh, uh, coming out at? In terms of what the what the polling is showing. Yeah, based off what we what we think right now, how many how many seats do the Republicans pick up? How many? I mean, I'm just spitballing because I don't know that I've seen I, a I really good projection. Well, I've 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 seen a few. Maybe I've, maybe GOP fifty two plus one plus two. Maybe right. fifty two. Maybe maybe maybe, maybe plus two. Yeah. Um, and I understand this is this is forward looking, something the Democratic Party doesn't seem to do anymore. Not well, anyway. It, not very well, but if, if you look forward to 24, when it's actually a much better map for Republicans, there's a lot of Democrats in Republican-held states, in Trump-won states, uh, that are up for grabs in 24. There are projections minimum that GOP would pick up six. They could pick up as many as nine or 10 in 24. Now, I'm not saying they will, but let's say they pick up one in 22, and let's say they pick up three or four in in uh, in 2024. You really think that they're going to want to be um, 
going to work every day in the Senate, knowing that they've just blown up the legislature. No, of course not. Partially. And, and hoping that the Republicans don't pay them back in kind, like Mitch McConnell paid him back in kind for Harry Reid's partial breakage of the of the legislative and nomination filibuster. Yeah. No, it's a non-starter. Manchin's not going to go along with it. And by the way... Because, um, they, because there's at least two people on the Democratic side that know they're going to be in the minority well, very, plus- very soon. Plus, there's a third who's not going to be there for that vote, which is, you know, Senator Patrick Leahy, who who we, you know, send best wishes to, broke his hip this morning or late last night and underwent surgery this morning as we're talking here. Um, he was going to retire anyway. He was he this was his last year in the Senate. He was going to retire at the end of the year. Vermont is holding an open seat election, which I don't think Republicans have too much of a chance of winning. But who knows in this in this cycle? Um, and um I, I would say that um, the problem for Chuck Schumer is even if you couldn't get Manchin and Cinnamon to come along with that, you're, you're still at 49 votes until right. until uh, Leahy gets back. And, you know, Leahy's 82 years old, and certainly we hope he recovers quickly and he's strong enough to come back to work. But, I mean, realistically speaking, he's not going to be able to come back to work before August 8th, which is when they go into the summer recess. They're in recess right now, by the way. Right. And and, um, and and after that, you're into you're into formal fall campaign mode. And I'm telling you, Democrats don't want to run on that. No, they, they don't want they don't want to take a vote on it. Cortez Mass. Mark Kelly doesn't want to take that vote. in nope. Arizona. Nope. No. So, I mean, once you get past the, the first couple, I mean, the Senate doesn't even come back until July 9th. So they're not even going to be around for the next couple of weeks. And by the time they get back, they've got, I think, 12 days on the legislative calendar to get other stuff done. And they have to get it done now without Patrick Leahy, which means that they're going to need Republican cooperation. Right. They actually have a probe stuff that they've got to get done. Well, after after Labor Day. And, you know, hopefully maybe Leahy's back by then. Because, you know, I mean... I don't want to see Leahy's votes in the Senate floor, but I I don't have a personal animus against Pat Leahy, and I hope he retires and does a lot more Batman cameos in his retirement and enjoys himself. And the people of Vermont elected him to be in that seat. So, you know, right. I mean, that's that's their choice, not mine. And so um, even when he comes back, though, it's all going to be about appropriations. they got to get a budget done by the end of the month or at least a continuing resolution. They're not going to have time to right. to uh, play with this nonsense well, it's not even just goofing around they're going to need to get some cooperation on those things to get a budget passed or or a cr passed and they can't afford to antagonize republicans by trying to uh, target the filibuster again that they, they have too much things that they have to they have too many things they have to get accomplished in september so i mean this is it's it's just stupid on stilts is what this is which, and which again and which is and joe, joe biden which is Joe Biden, who has been in that body for, you know, decades before, you know, stumbling around the White House. Yep. The, the, the man the man has absolutely zero instincts. And that's when every brain cell in his head was working. Um, it's it's stunning how how bad he is at politics for for a career politician. Yep. He is. That's because he kept getting elected out of Delaware. <laughs> You know, he was he was good for the credit card companies. He was good for the he was good for well credit companies in general, right? He's good for the banks. He was good for the financial institutions and Farms. so people, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Ethanol, I mean, that kind of stuff. They weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't electing him because of his towering intellect. We have a couple on the Republican side that we could say the same thing, by the way. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say that, that, you know, that this is just a, a, a something that right. is but, a, but, unique but, but to Joe not, Biden, but, but we're, but we're not trying to make those Republicans presidents right now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, this is just a bad idea, uh, just a super bad idea, especially because this is not where people are focused. And uh, to get to the, uh, we can we can take a look at data on that. That came out just last night. You and I were talking last night while we were talking. The Associated Press published a new poll with, in partnership a- with NORC, right? AP, AP NORC poll, yeah. AP NORC poll. Um, and Joe Biden's, I, I, we can, I, I just briefly mentioned it, Joe Biden's approval rating was 3960 in this. Um, he's, but, that was, but that wasn't the telling that, number. This that poll. was not they, the telling they number. Had, they had a right track, wrong track uh number on there and i think the overall number was in the high 70s i think the overall number was no it was 85 percent wrong direction 85 percent i i stand corrected i i I gave him the benefit of the doubt it was 85 oh yeah don't do that amongst (laughs) democrats amongst democratic voters the, the, the same Democratic voters that put Joe Biden into office a year and a half ago and were running away from Donald Trump, 78%, 79% of Democrats. I mean, just 78. basically, 78%. Eight, basically eight out of 10. I mean, if you do simple rounding, it's eight out of 10 Democrats think that the country is going the wrong direction now. Now, who's in charge of the federal government right now? Well, not just Joe Biden, but Democrats in general, including Chuck see, Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. You see, that's what I thought. So yeah. if eight out of 10 people think that Democrats running things um, is sending the country the wrong direction, Ed, that's death electorally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're looking at this chart from, uh, and I can't, I can't put it up here, I don't think. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can put it up here in just a second. But if you're looking at a, the chart that the Associated Press supplied with this poll um, and you're trying to model an election turnout that is somehow going to rescue your party from um, from doom. I mean, I think that it's almost hemlock time among democratic strategists who have to be looking at this and saying, dear Lord, there is just simply, there is no hope whatsoever. So, this is- So again, in the face of that- Here, I'll, I'll, see if I can, I'll see if I can put this up here. Uh, you won't be able to see it, Dwayne, but the people at, at home will be able to see this. This is the chart I'm talking about. And uh, it says Democrats are increasingly negative about the direction of the country. Percent who say wrong direction. Now, the red line up here is, of course, <laughs> Republicans, which has been started off at 79 percent. It's at 92 percent right now. Independents started off at 49 percent. This is a co- over the entire course of Biden's presidency, starting in January 2021. Independents started off at 49 percent. They're at 85 percent now. But what's really interesting, and Dwayne, uh, I, I know that you've seen the chart, so I'll, uh, you know, I can describe this to you, is what happens on the Democratic line. You know, it was at 61% wrong direction in the beginning of the year, the beginning of this year, right? And then it dropped down to 43%, and that was apparently the rally effect around the Russia-Ukraine thing in the, in the State of the Union speech. But then it bounces immediately back up. And if you look at this, it's basically, if you if you had a trend line here, it would show you basically almost a straight line between the summer of last year and the 78% here. And it's Democrats have uh, have increasingly abandoned um, uh, 
uh, Joe Biden over that period of time. This doesn't have anything to do with abortion, and, by the way. It has everything to do with Joe Biden. Well, and I haven't seen the overlay yet, but I would ah. venture a guess. I would venture a guess that if you overlaid that graphic or that chart from June of last year to gas prices from June of last year till now. Well, I, I will tell you this, that, that there's another chart here, which is a little bit more specific. It's a, a chart about the view of the national economy. Now, this isn't just wrong direction because you can you can read all sorts of things into wrong direction, right? The last couple the last couple of iterations of this wrong direction thing, I mean, you could arguably say, well, they're reacting to, you know, Dobbs and the end of Roe, right? Because it was leaked at the beginning of May. But I mean, that's not, not, that's not what's going on here. Let me go ahead and put this next chart up here on the screen so people can see it. And again, this is out of my post that just went up this morning. Uh, Views of the national economy are increasingly negative. And you can see that in the summer, you sort of had this um, improvement amongst um, independents and Democrats, right? They actually, actually, Democrats had a negative, had like 74% negative at the very beginning of Biden's, you know, because this is the Trump, the Trump years, but even Republicans weren't very happy with it at the beginning right. there. Um, Republicans, of course, dissatisfaction has gone up, but not steeply because it was already high to begin with. Independents, you know, dipped down and then really started escalating after the summer of 2021. Democrats got down to 39% dissatisfied with the um uh or, or the saying that the economy was poor now up to 67 percent so right. it's almost doubled in that period of time since the summer and it's really shot up you don't even see the trough in march right, right? so so what has what has changed in the last 12 months since july of 21 to june of 22 well food is more expensive you can't find baby formula gas prices have basically doubled in the last in the last year or close to it uh yep. doubling in some parts of the country uh crime is off the charts uh, there's homeless uh problems in in urban cities uh, everywhere it's just not working the, you know the liberal utopia that they thought they put in is not working it's just not happening right when and- when, Demo- when, when democrats see gas see, that's the dirty little secret here uh, for for all the environmentalist stuff and all the climate change stuff and and how Democrats have owned that issue, when you actually look at voting Democrats and they see what this actually what, what the policy uh, actually manifests itself in terms of what they're paying at the pump and shortages and everything else, they don't like it much. And when they don't like it much and they see everybody else around them is not liking it much, they turn just as sour on on Joe Biden as everybody else does. In in fact, it, in in a, in a according to that chart, it's even a steeper, steeper climb. Uh, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. But again, if you were to overlay the, the jump in prices of gas to the disapproval number of, or the wrong track number, those, those lines are going to be fairly, fairly parallel. I would think. Uh, I would think so too, Dwayne. And, um, and again, if you take a look at the, you can, I've drilled down a little bit farther into the, into the issue uh, ratings, which aren't really a surprise here. This is, this pretty much lines up with their, their issue ratings, but I think it's interesting to find out where Democrats actually fall in this because the Associated Press actually broke this out. They didn't supply the, um, 
the the cross tabs, but they they gave a graphic that broke this out um, on the economy. Uh, Dems support uh, Joe Biden fifty four forty three. Now it's a majority of Democrats that are still supporting Biden on the economy, but forty three percent disapprove of his of, of his economic policies. Yeah. By the way, among independents, you, take a guess what it is among independents. What his what is what his economic approval rating is among independents? Nine. You're close. It's fourteen eighty four. Okay, I fourteen eighty four among among non affiliated voters. It's fourteen eighty four. I was thinking it was getting close to single digits. Well, it is. You're yeah. right. It's getting close to single digits. I mean, when you look at numbers like. In, in the independence, all the independent things here by on the pandemic, it's 3860 on gun policy, it's 2771. And that could cut either way. Right. Uh, because right. basically he's been impotent on gun policy, thankfully so far. But the economy doesn't cut either way. Right. This but, is exactly. this is pure but, Biden Democrats. But but, you know, you take it back to our, our, our opening question, which is. So Democrats are really going to they're, they're going to say, yeah, now's the time. Let's blow Let's we'll just partially blow up the, the legislative filibuster. That's that's what we'll do um, when they know they're going to be in the minority for at least the next six years, um, 22 to 24 into 26 before they they even have a chance to start to, to chip away at it again. They're really going to want the Republicans to have um a, a, a simple majority to be able to do whatever they want legislatively, because as much as Mitch McConnell has said he does not want to do that, and nor will he do that preemptively, if the Democrats partially break it first, you better believe there's going to be a response in kind. Yes, it's it's the, the, that filibuster idea is idiotic. It's just simply idiotic, it's and it's and it's 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 misdirection again. Yeah, are people concerned about the end of Roe? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I don't it's think that way, that's, it's but it's way down on the list, way, right way, way down the list. If, if the economy was going well and gas prices were low and supply no. chain issues had been resolved, this might be actually a fairly big, big deal. electorally. Where, where were the, where were but then the again, but then where again, the... but wait, wait, but then again, if all those things were true, Democrats wouldn't have to worry about <laughs> Well, this, running this, on is, this, uh, is, this if, is true. If all those things were if all those things were fixed, do you think Democrats would run on on abortion hysteria, or do you think they'd be running on the economy and gas prices? <laughs> we've we have seen we have seen columns out of the right on National Review and out of the left. I I can't remember which which uh, which outlet was whether it's BuzzFeed or or the Nation or one one of these types of of, of lefty um, uh, online sites that. The, the the column writer on, on on both the ends of the political spectrum were saying, where, "Where's the democratic reaction to all this? Where's uh, how how come how come the, everybody's been known for the last fifty days that this road decision was going to come down the way it did? That the draft got leaked out and the final copy was close enough to it. We knew what the outcome was going to be. How come the Democrats didn't have a good response to this? How come they they don't have a a clear, articulate uh, message to be able to say why this is so wrong and 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 how to to win people over on this issue. There, there is there, there, there's nothing to fight on this. If you look at the protesters, where are all the protesters on this? Uh, they, they were out on they were out on Friday. You know, they had the well, they had they're the, they're protesters. You're still seeing protesters. They've had they had them in Dallas. Not, Dallas to, not to any 
in the last couple of days. It's, not well, it's, a, it's the usual suspects, right? I mean, you don't see you don't see a a, a mass uh, right uprising. We're not seeing over this. We're we're not seeing like you know George Floyd riots like we saw for weeks. Well, on thank, end. thankfully, but I mean, even apart from the riots, right? Even apart I from the riots, we're not seeing we're not seeing the demonstrations right over George no. Floyd. Even if you even if you separate the riots out from them. We, mean, we like saw going on. we saw demonstrations in cities on Friday night, but outside of that, they they waned pretty quickly. Which means all this oomph that Democrats thought they were going to get fundraising and energy off of this, it's just not there. It's just not that important. The main reason why is because if you actually poll the American people, it they're pretty nuanced about this they 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 don't want to mess with abortion in, the, in in the first trimester first 15 weeks or so but after that they really kind of blanch at the whole institution and they don't like it much and so they're you know I, I, we've had this conversation before where neither party really is reflecting the where the american people are at on this but the democrats thinking that you know this is going to be the rallying cry and americans are going to jump to their defense on abortion the country's just not with them on it. No, nope. they just really are not. Nope, nope. I agree. I agree. And All the right. Republicans aren't running on it. That's the problem. Right. You know, it, it. You're you're correct in saying that the Republicans don't accurately ref reflect it because they want basically no abortions at all. There's going to be you know the messy part of uh, representative democracy is there's going to be every state's going to kind of get somewhere near where Mississippi got to which is, you know, some, somewhere around a 15-week ban. Yep. Um, they're, they're all going to get there. But the Democrats are purportedly now going to run on abortion because they have nothing else to run on. The Republicans are going to look at gas prices, food, baby formula, crime, all the stuff that people care about because, well, they want to win. Right, right. We've got just a couple minutes left here. I want to, um, you're talking about, uh, speaking of running, Amy Parnes, who is a pretty well-connected writer, you know, this is yeah. not this is not just some rando blogger like you know <clears throat> Ed Morrissey. Um. Oh no, she's 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 not only a very good reporter, but she is very plugged into Team Hillary. She's Always very plugged into been. Clinton land. Absolutely, Always very plugged into Clinton been. land. She is reporting that uh, you know there's some been some throat clearing in Clinton land that Hillary Clinton might run for president in 2024. Maybe if Joe Biden she steps is four away. years younger than Joe Biden is. I think in, five. It, I think she's five years younger. In, in her world, she's a spring chicken uh, by comparison. <laughs> she can look at Joe Biden and say, he's too old. You should have never gone with him. You should have gone with me to begin with. And she can look at Donald Trump and say, you could have had me instead of Donald Trump. And you wouldn't have had this uh, Roe v. Wade uh, decision overturned. She's she's thinking that the field is coming to her. Yeah. I, 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 I swear she in her head wakes up every morning and looks in the mirror and says, you know what? You, you've been patient. You've, you've had the patience of Job, but your day is coming. It's going to happen. She, she to the day she goes to her grave, if she doesn't succeed, she will spend every day thinking of a way how I could make myself relevant and run for president again, because she thinks it's still owed to her. She well, still thinks she's going to be president. Well, Dwayne, you know, in 2016, 
The subject of Jeffrey Epstein came up a bit. It sure did, didn't it? And it's a lot more prevalent right now. I mean, just this past week, Ghislaine Maxwell got sentenced to 20 years in prison, right? In federal prison. She got a 20-year sentence in federal prison. And uh, people like Vicki Ward are already writing, where... What where what are we doing with you all the men think, who palled around with Jeffrey Epstein? Do you think that Democrats are really going to go for a Hillary Clinton run? You, do you, do you think that all that information is thoroughly bottled up under uh, you know under a, a lead lead line case so that it can't be penetrated? Do you think that you think that data is perfectly secure and that nobody has access to all that information by no, now? No, I don't I don't think that that's the case. I think it, yeah. I think it's going to start leaking, but I'm even even beyond the Jeffrey day, Epstein, every day she wakes up thinking that I can be president and I will be president. Every even apart from that, is, is do do the Democrats really want to become the eternal party of the boomer? <laughs> I mean, seventy seven years old should be seventy seven years else? old. Who else? Gavin Newsom. Well, I mean, I mean Jared Polis, Andy Bashir. The problem is, is they don't have a deep bench because they, no, they, they blew their they blew their state houses and they blew their gubernatorial seats in 2010. Um, and, and the problem is, and they're the going to get wiped out this time around too. What bench they they think they their minor league program that they think they've developed over the last uh, four or five years that's going to get shellacked in congressional and and state house races this term and next term yep. because yep. the economy is so bad. Yep. The, the entire, I mean, this is going to be a, a, an extinction level event as far as the minor league programs for, for the democratic party. I don't know where their, I don't know where their bench is going to be at this point. Yeah, Bernie I, I, Sanders is still viable at this point. And he's because, 80 years old. <laughs> name, name me, name me somebody else. Some, some state house rep somewhere. I mean, who's, who's, who's gonna. No, 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 no. I mean, it, it would, it would is, probably, is, it have to be one of the governors. There, there are governors out there. You got uh, John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, which is, you know, an iffy proposition. Granted. At best. At best. At best. Uh, uh, but, but still, at least an option. And, um, and you've got. Um, I'm not even sure Andy Bashir in Kentucky, if he were to get the nomination, I'm not sure he even carries Kentucky in the general. Yeah, it's. I mean, Polis would carry Colorado, right? But Democrats are going to win that state anyway. Um, where, where else is? What other state is is he going to draw? Oh, I, I think that Polis would be. Um, um, I think Polis. I think Polis would actually be a draw. Polis is a pretty smart guy. Um, you know, he's first a, off, he's pretty wealthy, so he's got his own money. He's he's got his own money, but the the whole smoke him if you got a message is gonna is gonna win over the South. Where uh, I think you're I think you're underestimating how uh, popular I, I, that might end up being. I I I don't think it, I don't think he could compete against Ron DeSantis, right? I think but Ron I think DeSantis, he, but Ron I think DeSantis would 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 beat him all sorts of. But I think ways. he'd be the most credible guy that they could run against him. He's a, he's a he's Possibly. a he's a, he's a purple to blue state governor who's worked with Republicans. He's got the he's got the gubernatorial experience now. He's got uh, private sector experience. I, I'm telling you, this is the guy that they probably need to run, but they'll run. They're going to try to run Biden or Hillary, and it will work out as well as we think it will. All right, we got to wrap this yep. up. What's coming up on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show? 
Uh, we actually have a fairly busy day for a Friday. Normally, Fridays are kind of light days for us, but it's actually kind of busy. In addition to the uh, Larry Arn Hillsdale conversation, we are going to be talking to Admiral James Stavridis. Uh, we're going to have a conversation with Shelby Steele, um, which is going to be kind of interesting. He's you know longtime California uh, conservative. He's you know old school African American um, conservative, and talking about uh, how and why African Americans are leaving the Democratic Party in droves, uh, which is going to be an interesting conversation. Um, Sunny Bunch will do movies. We got lots ahead uh, tomorrow. Well, that sounds good. You know what I got coming up this afternoon? <laughs> Tell me. I just found out while we were talking here that uh, Drew Mariani's out sick today and they need me to fill in a relevant radio. Oh, well, that, so, puts a, that puts a little kink in things, doesn't it? It does put a little kink in things, so I won't be doing the live chat. I didn't do it on Tuesday because I was filling in for Drew on Tuesday, too. And, uh, and he came back yesterday, but apparently he's still not feeling uh, ship shape. So they've asked me to step in again. And I, I said, yes. Yeah. So I won't be doing the live chat today, folks, but uh, well, tell Drew that he is not allowed to be sick next Wednesday. Well, he won't be allowed to be sick next Wednesday. Cause I'm already going to be doing the Hugh Hewitt show on Wednesday. So yeah, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm doing, getting some guest hosting. I am getting the reps I, I, and I love the reps. So it should be a lot of fun. All right, so that's what's going on, and uh, don't forget to tune into the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. And Dwayne, General Ismo Patterson, thanks again. We will talk to you next week, sir. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. The Supreme Court scored a major victory for both common sense and tolerance when it comes to private prayer in public places. Writing for a 6-3 majority, Neil Gorsuch wrote that a high school football coach's prayer on the field after a game did not amount to an endorsement of religion by the school district, reversing his termination and lower court rulings. The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, Gorsuch wrote in Kennedy v. Bremerton, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. A simple and voluntary prayer of thanksgiving after the end of a school event neither harms nor compels anyone. Firing people over such a prayer harms and intimidates many. It shouldn't take the Supreme Court to get schools and courts to recognize common sense, but thankfully this time Gorsuch and a majority delivered a common sense outcome that religious and non-religious Americans can live with. That is true tolerance. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining us, my old friend, Marcel Guarnizzo, Father Marcel Guarnizzo, who is, uh, is a longtime, longtime friend, a, a, a longtime guest here of the Ed Morrissey Show in one form or another. And uh, man, we've chatted around the world, Father Marcel. Yes, thank you, Ed, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, it's interesting because we're going to have a debate here about the Dobbs decision, and it's sort of a, a counterintuitive debate. Um, I'm actually delighted with this. I actually think that I, I don't have too many problems with the internal construction of the Dobbs decision. And I know, I think, I think at least I know that you're, that you're fine with the outcome, but you're not happy with the decision itself. Tell us a little bit about where you think that there are shortcomings in the Dobbs decision. Should I start with saying some of the things that I think were positive about the decision? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Whatever great. you want to start with. Okay. So 
the decision itself in the beginning is it really sort of captures the whole problem. The Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are basically overruled. Okay, check. That's good. Amazing that it took 50 years to see that the Constitution doesn't confer a right to abortion and 60 million babies dead for the court to wise up to this fact. Okay. I think that is fundamental in some senses because it recovers one of the founding or the founding document of the United States and it purges it from kind of the egregious false interpretation that it conferred the right for women to kill their babies. So that's a very good thing. You need your founding documents to be sound. So it's good to recover that. I think it's also helpful in another regard because it cleanses and restores legitimacy to the Supreme Court. Right now, that was really clearly a delegitimizing factor of the Supreme Court to say that because of their decision, mothers were entitled to kill babies in America. So it's good to cleanse that because it dissipates the doubt about the legitimacy of the court. I think that's also helpful. I think the third reason that it's helpful is that it's possible for some states now to enforce laws to protect the life of the uh, uh, undelivered babies in the womb. So that's possible. That's good. And finally, it probably creates some cultural cultural impetus, uh, not only nationally, but internationally, uh, for further laws to be created to protect the unborn. Obviously, it's creating an impetus as a maybe from the pro-life point of view, uh, a secondary effect, right, which is the other side is also now uh, uh, seeking to create laws to secure abortion, right, in constitutions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think it did that, um, and I think that's very important. From a legal and historical perspective, I think they made a good analysis um, to debunk the improper understanding of stare decisis that the court was maintaining, that this is not proper understanding of stare decisis from a historical point of view. And it also showed that historically there were protections for the unborn, that abortion was criminalized in most states in the United States before Roe v. Wade, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is all very good. And without doubt, the grassroots efforts of millions who've been praying and working for this, and uh, I would say in particular, you know, the people who are in front of those abortion clinics trying to help mothers, you know, uh, find a better course of action has been, you know, uh, it's good uh, that this has happened. As well as those uh, investigations undercover investigations, which were really kind of a tipping point in the public square to show the horrors of the abortion industry. Right. Yes. Good point. So I say all of that, people who've gone to jail and peaceful civil disobedience, all these sacrifices merited rescuing the founding document of the United States. Having said all of that, the reasoning in this problem seems to me to have been absolutely incorrect. And you saw this actually in uh, the congratulatory expressions that some pro-lifers and others, even in the church, had regarding the problem. I will use a couple of bishops to show the problem, because to see what the Protestant position is, is impossible, because they're all over the map. So let me just stick with somebody who actually has a position that is consistent all the time, namely the Catholic Church. Cardinal Joseph Tobin of Newark proclaimed that the United States Supreme Court, this is his statement after the decision, ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization to overturn the 1973 decision that legalized abortion nationwide, recognizes that even the most helpless and dependent human beings have a right to life and possess inherent dignity and worth. 
This is coupled, let's say, with Archbishop Nelson Paris of Philadelphia, who said, I am grateful to the justices for their opinion, which confirms the deep value inherent to every human life, right? Right. Okay. I'd like to just start by saying that did not happen in Dobbs. That is a false premise. They did not read the opinion. And many of these people went to their Twitter feeds or whatever they are immediately (laughs) with having read it because I read the opinion and it was over 80 pages and 200 pages of material. They didn't read it. No, I think it's, I mean, I think, I think I know where you're going with this, which is that they actually didn't uphold, um, the right to life, what they did was they, they just vacated Roe. They didn't actually take a position as to whether or not there's a constitutional protection for unborn children uh, in the womb under, with a right to life. And you're right. They didn't do that. that that's it's, nowhere to be found in Dobbs. It's not even sort of they left it up for uh, debate. They clearly stated this is the Dobbs decision. Our opinion is not based on any view about if and when prenatal life is entitled to any of the rights enjoyed after birth. Explicitly in the decision, they're denying exactly what these bishops and so many pro-lifers are celebrating. This is not because we've recognized the ontological status of the unborn or that they have a right to life or equal protections under the 14th Amendment. They did not vindicate the right to life. So that I would just correct. That is not what happened, right? Right. That would be the first correction. So the, the decision was not based on an issue of justice owed to the child in the womb or as a subject to the right to life. Okay, so this is false. The second error of interpretation comes, and I'm going to use another bishop just to make it easy. This is Archbishop Gomez, who's the president of the USCCB, who should know better, in my opinion. <clears throat> so in his sort of press statement regarding the decision he wrote, for nearly 50 years, America has enforced an unjust law that has permitted some to decide whether others can live or die. This policy has resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of preborn children. And then it goes on to say, this truth was grievously denied by the US Supreme Court, namely that no one has a right to decide who lives and who dies. We thank God today that the court has now overturned this decision. Okay, this also did not happen. No, yeah, you're right, you're right. This is absolutely not the case. In fact, the whole Dobbs decision from a foundational point of view is sustained on the fact that somebody has the right to decide who lives and who dies. That the great discovery, Solomonic discovery of Alito and friends was that the usurpation, the injustice that Roe and Casey was, was not about the usurpation of the right to life of the unborn or the child in the womb. The usurpation was that the, the, the court had usurped the rightful of authority of the states and the people to decide which babies live and die, right? That was kind of the Solomonic wisdom of the Dobbs decision. And they wrote about it quite openly, right? But the people of the various states, this is the decision, may evaluate those interests differently, talking about whether the child should live or not, or abortion right. or no abortion. In some states, voters may believe that the right that the abortion right should be even more extensive than the right that Roe and Casey recognized. Voters in other states may wish to impose tight restrictions based on their belief that abortion destroys an unborn human being, right? They they over and over and over said that the court finds that it is the rightful um, possessor 
of the authority to decide the question on who lives and who dies, that that is to be located in the states and potentially with the people. Right. right. This is exactly contrary to what Gomez imagines happened, right? That now no one gets to decide whether babies live or, or don't live. So I would say that is the second immediate correction. And you can see parts of the decision, in my opinion, were so logically contradictory, frankly dumb, if you ask me the question. Look at this. I mean, part of what the decision says is that there is no right to abortion that could be found. And they did their historical excursus in Casey right. and Roe. But then here they say in some states, voters may believe that the abortion right. OK, so now they're affirming that there is an abortion right after saying that there is no abortion right. Now they're affirming there is an abortion right. Not only that should be even more extensive than the right that Roe and Casey recognized. OK, I thought you just said at the top that Roe and Casey did not find an abortion, could not sustain an abortion right because it could doesn't exist. It, right, yeah. right. And now you're saying that you could find an abortion right. Apparently it exists still in the mind of Alito and company, but even more extensive than the abortion right that Rowan Casey found. So now you're saying that Rowan Casey actually did find a right to abortion and you could go even more. Well, I'd say that they that. claim to have found, right? I, I kind of, when I read that too, I mean, I was thinking, it, it, I think I thought the reference was that the, the, the Roe court and the Casey court claimed to have, well, actually really only the Roe court because even the Casey court, didn't actually it didn't actually have a logical explanation of what the right was but they, totally. they claim they claim to have found and maybe yeah. it's maybe he's using shorthand on that in that I don't, um, in that instance I, but I, I don't think so i think this is just sloppy because he is literally right. saying that the voters may believe that the right to abortion what 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 abortion are you right are you possibly talking about now you're inventing the right after saying there is no right in the constitution yeah that's right. and that's poor work because voters exactly. don't voters don't create rights they create they create statutes they create legalities they create illegalities yes. they don't create rights rights are founded in the constitution or right. in state state constitutions for that matter and, too. and they're holding that it would be unproblematic that states would have a right even more extensive than the right that roe and casey recognized so now you're contradicting yourself again recognizing that roe and casey had a right i mean yeah horrible 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 so i think at the beginning of the of the decision the constitution does not confer a right to abortion they had like a moment there, right? You had right. two options at this point. One option was, okay, now you're going to go vindicate the right of life, the right to life of the unborn. And then you go on to state under possibly the 14th amendment. Other possibilities would be the 13th amendment or just simply from the constitution as a whole, et cetera. So you didn't go for that option. You didn't vindicate the right to life, but then you had another possibility was to declare that abortion is unconstitutional meaning that abortion, and I think this is a huge problem in our society and yeah. in the pro-life movement, because we've talked about abortion. We've forgotten what an abortion is. That is to say, abortion is only a type of homicide, right? So you could right. have fratricide that is killing your father, or you could have fratricide killing your brother or matricide killing your mother. Abortion is the homicide of the baby in the womb. But it goes under the category of homicide, but because we constantly talk about abortion, it looks like it's a sui generis kind of act that we have to like figure out all special circumstances for it when it is not. It's a sanitizing term is what you're talking about. It, it, um, it, distracts, from, it distracts from the reality. It distracts from the reality, but it's a very significant thing from a legal point of view. Absolutely, yeah. Be because if it is homicide, you don't need to go on codifying and creating new laws. It simply goes under the penal statute, the penal code of your state, 
that this is one type of homicide, which is already forbidden in the United States and also forbidden in federal law by the U.S. Code of Laws. Right. right? You just go to the U.S. Code of Laws, Chapter 51, and you see all the sections on homicide, manslaughter, first degree, second degree. If people would stop talking about abortion and start, start talking about homicide of the baby in the womb, now we're in the proper mental category. This is not some special mysterious case that nobody even knows what to do. This is homicide. Yeah, I so mean, you, you can't can even call legalize it, you can even, homicide. You can even call it feticide, right? I mean, I mean, you could, you could, if you wanted to have a specific term for it, that that better reflected what the act actually was, you know. I, I would actually say homicide because it's possible, because if you want to protect life from the moment of conception, somebody would try to make the distinction, oh, it's not a fetus yet, right? Okay, right. I'd say homicide is, the definition of it properly would be what when somebody kills or, you know, um, commits murder or kills uh, a human being. What is a human being? It's an individual member of the human species. So the second we recognize an individual member of the human species, conception, we know this scientifically, you have a human being, end of story. That's what it means to be a single member of the human species, that you're a man or you're a human being, and that's it. And homicide means to kill a human being. And then it's easy because you already have laws forbidding homicide in the states, right? Right. So, so the second phenomenal error of the Alito court was, uh, or the Alito opinion, the majority opinion, was that no one has a right to decide when someone lives or dies who is innocent, and in this case, the babies and the unborn. To actually, as many times as they affirmed in the court that the rightful authority is in the states, is it's exactly the mentality that gave us Roe versus Wade. Yep. They thought they could decide who could kill babies. And now the court is saying the state can decide who kills babies. I mean, this is an absurdity. This is not a democratic thing, which they were insisting in the democratic system. Da, 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 da. Any vote to kill the unborn is by definition not democratic. It's totalitarian. Right. Period. Well, let me ask but, you this. I mean, I, I, and, and, you know, we've got a couple minutes left here. I'll play devil's advocate. Maybe that's not the best. I mean, that's not the best choice of words, Father Marcel, but I'm going to do, I'm going to use it anyway. The, one of the, one of the aspects of this case is that that particular question wasn't in front of the Supreme Court. That the particular question that was in front of the Supreme Court was whether or not you could, whether or not the state of Mississippi could limit abortions in to 15 weeks, right? In view of Roe. I don't yeah. think either side made the argument which I've heard a lot of pro-lifers make, by the way. This is not, it's not a new argument. It's not an, even a novel argument. It's actually an argument that pro-lifers make quite a bit. But I don't think either side in this case advanced that argument. And so the Supreme Court really didn't have that question in front of it. You would have to almost challenge one of these state laws that are coming up. And in terms of the, you know, 13th, 14th Amendment um, and, and, you know, core right to life um propositions of the American founding documents. Okay, and that, and I, that case may be coming, right? But it, uh, that wasn't the case. I hear you, Ed, but here's the question, right? In the beginning of the statement, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled. Stop there. If you're going to say that this does not, that this was not part of the case, okay, then stop there, right? Don't go on to teach, which he thinks was a great syllogism. Therefore, right? The proper authority goes back to the state. He actually, I mean, it was breathtaking. Like the presumptionness of this decision was for me like astonishing, right? Because he makes these bad syllogisms and contradictions and says that 
we, it is time that we now listen to the Constitution. The states are the ones who are supposed to make the decision. You could have stopped to hold your argument at saying that the Constitution does not confer the right to abortion. Roe in case you overrule, stop. Don't then go on to teach the same error that brought us Roe v. Wade, which is my complaint, right? If you're not going to vindicate the right, if you're not going to say things that are correct, don't go on to say that the Constitution teaches that the state may decide when to kill human beings and allow homicide. Don't go on to say, as he said, or as the majority opinion said, it's unequivocally the case that the Constitution allows for states to do this. Right. Don't go on to say that it's no problem that states expand the right to abortion, which he just said there doesn't exist. So they could have stopped. It's the teaching moment that they went further to say absolutely illogical, immoral, legally unsustainable things, right? They said that there's no legal tradition in history to find in the Constitution a right to abortion. Okay, but now you're saying that the state could find in their own constitutions a legal historical tradition to sustain abortion because you're okay with the state finding this, inventing this new right. This just makes no logical sense. Everything after that first sentence of bringing down Roe is just completely irrational as far as I'm concerned and just full of contradictions. I mean... All right, it, so, so yeah. Father Marcel, I mean, it's it's certainly not perfect, right? But it is it is a a major advance along those lines, and hopefully a uh, a follow up case may address some of those issues. Um, I, so I, I get mean, your, I get your point, but I mean, do you agree that this at least moves the ball forward in the right direction, or do you think that this or do you think that this actually cripples the argument? I would say that it moves the ball forward in the aspects that I read at the beginning, that it yep. was positive from that point of view. I would say from a foundational point of view to resolve this problem, it actually, it's doubling down on the error now from quote unquote, the good guys who are supposed to be the great pro-life heroes, doubling down terribly on the error philosophically definitely doesn't help because now you have legislators passing laws that are actually not pro-life laws, making the mistakes and codifying it in their constitutions. Yeah. And that is a much more difficult thing to undo than the decision of the court, right? And you've kind of given them the authority or the impression that they have constitutional authority now to decide which babies get killed or not. So you have states calling for a 16 week ban on abortion. Okay, that was the viability line that we were saying is completely irrational that was being held by the pro-abortion forces. And now you have people like Mike Pence, let's go for a 16 week national ban on abortion. What, what are you, dumb? It was, what, yeah. How is that a proper standard? That was the standard they were using to impose abortion on this country. These legislators in, you know, in Mississippi and in all the different states cannot be passing laws that now make the same error that the court was making and the pro-abortion forces were making. All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this and see what the developments are. And actually, I think there's a really great perspective, Father Marcel. Really glad that uh, Father Marcel Guarnizo was here with us to uh, to sort of give us a little bracing reminder of the work that needs that still needs to be done in the wake of uh, Dobbs, in the wake of the uh, vacating of Roe by the Supreme Court. Uh, Father Marcel, where can people find you? Um, I guess I was just going to have to email you, Ed, and you can find me. <laughs> <laughs> I am now Father Marcel Guarnizo's agent. Um, yes. I will not disclose how much of uh, how much of the uh, the uh, how, what percentage of the huge ten of the huge ten trope. ten uh, ten percent because that's the biblical percentage. Yeah, they can. <laughs> 
I'm happy to talk about this problem in even greater length at greater length and depth. Um, if anybody who wants to give me a microphone, I think the pro life uh, contingent community is making mistakes, theoretical mistakes, which are a huge problem. And um, I mean, I could talk about the problems, not just the exceptions, but saying the life of the mother has to be included in the laws is another huge theoretical problem because the life of the mother is not an exception to abortion. It's actually not an abortion. If you legislate and codified erroneous laws, this is a problem because we can't ban those procedures that are legally possible and morally licit. But you now threw it in as if it were an abortion. What are these people thinking? Yep. 48 years. And you still don't understand the basic foundational premises of the pro-life movement. Unbelievable. Well, we're going to continue talking about this. We'll get Father Marcel back again, too, as, uh, as, as things develop. And they're going to be developing very quickly over the next few months and years. So, Father Marcel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank today. you, Ed. Always good to see you. Take care, buddy. Okay, bye. Stand by for more from The Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you like what you saw, be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube, and we're at the Town Hall Media Player. So be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And while you're at it, if you're at any one of the town hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VP, VIP Gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's On the Road Journalism, First Person Journalism, Journalism You Can Trust from the Border, from the Unrest in Cities, and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP Gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP Gold Chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP Gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.